Hello and welcome to episode six of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. It's 9am on Saturday morning, we're caffeinated and we're ready to talk about myth. And we also have a very special guest with us here, author and critic, Anwen Crawford. Hello, Anwen. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for being able to join us. I'm really surprised we all managed to find time within our busy schedules to actually meet up here <laughs> and talk about what we've seen so far and what we're looking forward to. So today we're going to look at our top three myth discoveries, and these can include films or directors or movements or colours or anything that we've particularly found outstanding so far in myth. Um, Eloise, could I start with you? I really like the kind of picking up on um, thematic consistencies, I guess, in films, or just like sort of random, Mm -hmm. really nice synchronicities in films. And I wanted to note that the... um, the first three films I saw of the festival, I think, all had live birth scenes in them. <laughs> Not all as graphic as, as each other, but um, that was a really nice kind of thing. And I will note that in, in future films now when I see it. But there, there was a f- particular film and it was really incredible. Um, and it sort of made me aware of the blurred lines between documentary and fiction in Paths to the Soul, which was this Chinese Tibetan film semi-documentary, but it must have had some fiction elements in it about a group of um, people, families um, and friends who did a, a pilgrimage to, through the Himalayas to their, to their mountain. And it must have been mostly documentary, but you couldn't really tell. But there was a birth scene and they went to the hospital and it was the most realistic birth scene. Maybe next to romance, Catherine Breer's romance um, <laughs> that I've ever seen. But the baby came out covered in muck um, yeah 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 and it was really incredible and i just wanted to note that it was you know a beautiful thing to see i don't know if that's a, a discovery but that was a nice little consistency in the films first films that i saw has anyone else noticed any bizarre consistencies i noticed up in sydney uh dogs were a refer- recurring theme like yeah. just like little, little in dogs. yeah in every single film or most of the films there the, I don't know what it is. I wonder if Cairns Palm Dog has any influence on this. <laughs> Maybe. But Jocelyn. also uh, um, red starfishes. So for those of you yes. who've seen Evolution, it has a very notable red starfish in it, really beautiful. And there's a film I saw, and this is where my myth fatigue is going to get in the way of me saying anything profound. But I saw a film yesterday that also had just a, a not really relevant red starfish in the distance does anyone remember what that movie was if has anyone picked up on that in any case red starfishes obviously mean something um (laughs) in 2016 well that's that's a nice segue eloise because my number three discovery was the film evolution i really really like that and i think Mm -hmm. it's the one film i've seen that's actually stayed with me still really beautifully beautifully filmed and quite disturbing and abstracted. I don't know, she's made this weird sort of nightmare tone, tonal kind of creepy nightmare film all about like anxieties and horrors around childbirth and puberty. Mm. Very, very odd film. What did you think of it? I loved it visually. I can't really, as I don't know, as a mood piece, it was very interesting and it reminded me of, I've said this to a few people, but I don't know how, how accurate my memory is, but it reminded me of The Handmaid's Tale, just in this very, like, dystopian kind of enclosed world, enclosed fiction 
manner, I suppose, and just in, mm. like, the the depiction of austerity um, and oppression. But, I mean, aside from that, you can't really get all that much narrative clarity out of it. But no. as a visual, audio-visual piece, it was stunning. Yeah. The final shot of the film, I think, attempts to, like, give you some narrative clarity, and that's where it sort of fell apart for me, because I thought, that's not really what this film's trying to do. So, it felt mm. a bit mm. arbitrary. But apart from that, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful movie. Well, that was another one with my live birth, a live birth in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, a semi-live birth in a kind of weird, <laughs> monstrous way. <laughs> the, uh... <laughs> Uh, yes, there's a quite startling shot of a 12-year-old boy in, like, a birthing tank with, like, mm. two babies. Are they... I don't know what... They're, they're attached to him somehow. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really explain what's going on, but it's deeply disturbing. <laughs> How did the audience respond to it when, in your screening? Um... I mean, there were a couple of walkouts, but I think most people were generally receptive to it. It's hard to say... Um, it's a very quiet film. That's the other thing about it. Mm. The soundtrack's quiet stunningly muted um, and you can sort of hear sounds seeping in from the forum uh, lounge every now and then which I think just sort of added to this whole crazy nightmarish dreamlike mm. not quite know what's going on kind of effect but no I think most people there respond I mean there was the classic you know oh what did I just watch comments but mm. you get that after every movie a bit so mm, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I haven't. I, I've managed not to see any films with childbirth in them so far. But I think my favourite film so far has been at the other end of the life cycle, which is a, a deathbed film, which is the, the death of Louis XIV, directed by Albert Seurat. Um, that that that's been the standout film for me so far. And again, like a a real mood piece. I found it really hypnotic. It got quite a muted response. The audience maybe weren't sure what to make of it. Um, but I thought it was wonderful, really uh, very precise, filmed largely in close-up. I mean, constructed very much like a series of kind of portraits, I guess, like Renaissance portraits. And because of the time when it's set, it's filmed in quite low lighting. So it's got that beautiful kind of painterly look mm. about it. Mm. But I also thought that like the central performance by Jean-Pierre Louard was amazing. And I guess that added poignancy of thinking that it may well be one of his final films, if not yeah. his final film. I thought he was extraordinary and that's a film that I would highly recommend. It's definitely stuck with me. I'm still yeah. I'm still thinking about it. Because um, a lot of films try and get that painterly quality and have a lot yeah. of like long shots, still frames. How did this film manage to kind of overcome the stiltedness that a lot of those films didn't? Yeah, so, um good question. I th think I think it was partly because maybe the he kind of pointed the camera where you didn't necessarily expect it. He would often hold a shot of somebody's face, but they weren't where the main action in the scene was. Mm. So there was a kind of interesting tension there in that there was there was always stuff kind of happening off off camera as well. Mm. I mean, and it's also largely confined to one room. I mean, it really is a... The title is quite literal. It really is a kind of deathbed. I mean, it is... It, I found it very beautiful, but it's. it also kind of didn't shy away from some quite vivid physical details mm. like gangrene mm. and okay. and at the end there's an autopsy scene after after the king has died um, um they must have used sausages or something. <laughs> 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 but, so it didn't it wasn't all like just you know kind of beautiful it was mm. it was quite visceral as well in its own way mm. yeah okay. that was great 
I mean, what was your? Did you have a number two? Is it, are these ranked? These discoveries? Oh uh, yeah, I don't know about ranking um, because I change my mind all the time and I'm terribly indecisive. But I will give a number two. Um, the discovery. I don't know if it's really discovery, but I just feel like I need to um, be specific in that I saw a film, Neon Bull, directed by um, Gabrielle Mascaro, a Brazilian film, um, and the cinematographer was the cinematographer who um, filmed A Picture Upon Where Sethical's Cemetery of Splendour, oh, um, yeah. which is a stunning film. Yeah. And I know a lot of people responded really, really well to mm, that. Mm. Um, so he was a cinematographer on this film, Neon Bull. And I think that um, it's possibly, you know, one of my top films that I've seen at the festival this year. It was a, sort of like a mood piece, just a slice of life of these cowboys working on a rodeo, rodeo kind of touring rodeo performance. Um, I mean, there were women in the film, but it was about men, but it wasn't really about traditional masculinity. It kind of like presented these men in just very, I don't know, very sensitive ways, but it, it wasn't like trying to put them forth as, you know, these bastions of, of you know, manly, physical manliness. Um, it just had sort of two leads and they were both very beautiful in, you know, in physical and kind of emotional senses, I suppose. And visually the film was just stunning. Like there was shots in the sunshine um, outdoors. There were shots of in clubs, in like nightclubs interiors, um, sort of with neon lights. Occasionally there was a focus on like a... a just an occasional focal point that was neon in the middle of, you know, this dusty kind of barren area. So I think it was, you know, beautifully directed and acted, but definitely have to give a shout out to to the cinematographer of that. And I don't know if it will get a release or screen anywhere else, Mm. but if you get the chance to see it, I absolutely recommend it. Mm, okay. Oh, good. Interesting. And Anders? Uh, yeah, so look, my number two would be uh, Eugene Green's film Le Fil de Joseph. I was introduced to Eugene Green last year with his film La Sapienza, which I really did not like. Um, I found it sort of pretentious, and usually I'm a fan of pretension, but this was just <laughs> empty, empty pretension. I did, it didn't really... I, I thought it was far cleverer than it was. Anyway, I was convinced to give this guy another go. Um, I was talking to John Edmund from Brisbane. He's um, one of the artistic directors of Queensland Film Festival. And he sort of argued, you know, why I should reassess on Eugene Green. So I sort of begrudgingly booked into his follow-up film, which is playing here at MIFF. And I went along and it really blew me away, particularly two scenes in the middle of the film that really, really sort of emotionally affected me in the way that nothing else really has at MIFF. And I wasn't expecting it. So Green's got this quite, people call it like a formalist style of filmmaking. It's sort of awkward and stilted, uh, lots of like perfectly symmetrical shots, characters talking straight uh, at the camera in the centre of the screen. So the audience is sort of like the people they're talking to. He does lots of like, you know, beautiful shots of uh, Western art and uh, paintings and architecture and that kind of stuff. The sort of physicality of his films is um, very unconventional, I guess. Mm. At first, it seems quite awkward, and it took me a very long time to get into this film, like over over an hour, um, I'd say. But then there were two absolutely stunning scenes of this uh, teenage boy and his sort of surrogate father figure in the film, 
going into a church and um, there's this really beautiful performance of early Baroque music in this church and we the film sort of disappears and we watch this performance for like 10 minutes probably and their uh, emotional reactions to it and then you see uh, in the immediate next scene you see this uh, teenage boy and it's like he's been transformed he's a new new kid he's gone from like being this surly rotten teenager to this sort of really inspired uh, kind of eager you know interested interested kind of guy but the film also suggests that this is a transformation that will not last particularly long Mm -hmm. so it's both this beautiful but also really really quite devastating moment as well very hard to sort of convey in words but it was i mean yeah in this bizarre pseudo comedy about the nativity transplanting the nativity story into contemporary france (laughs) um with like a satire of french literary the french literary scene as well in between all of this there's this sort of beautiful two-handed scene and um yeah it's my uh, yeah, my favourite moment, I'd say, at a film so far this year, at mm. Myth. Okay. Mm. And do you think he's kind of easy to get into? Do you think... Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, he, no, he's not. People, the, people are calling this his most accessible because it's kind of funny and it's, it's got a great performance by uh, Mathieu Almeric. He's He plays this sort of... Um, uh, like rotten French publisher, you know, self-involved kind of guy. And there is some funny humour in it, but it's he's not for everyone. It's the film that I've seen the most walkouts. I think people were expecting, you know, a, a conventional French kind of comedy. That's the way it's sort of sold, mm. uh, where it's not really that at all. Um, but if you're willing to give it a go, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm now reassessing. I want to go back and see all his other films, but he's very, he's a director who's, obs- like, seriously obsessed with uh, sort of, you know, Western high art, that kind of stuff. Mm. And I think he tries to make films about and within that sort of tradition. Okay. Do you think it would work better as a projection on a wall than a movie then? Uh, well, I don't know because I think you would you would lose uh, the emotional impact of of uh, those two scenes. I mean, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, uh, it, but it did. It took me over an hour. I was sort of, uh, and then suddenly this sort of moment happened and it blew me away. Hmm. Yeah. Which is cool. Um, Anwen, what's uh, your number two? Uh, I think my number two, I guess, is a theme of comedies about masculinity. So, two comedies that I saw on consecutive nights, both directed by women. Tony Erdmann, which is a German comedy directed by Marin Aide, perhaps a day. Are day. I apologise. Please let us know. Yes, please let us know. So, yes, Tony Erdman, a three-hour comedy about kind of, in some ways, fairly pathetic middle-aged, late middle-aged guy who is trying to reconnect with his daughter. His daughter's a kind of up-and-coming business consultant who lives in... Budapest from memory. So, uh, Tony Erdman was one of those kind of rare films for me where I couldn't predict where the plot was going to go. It it kind of veered off in all kinds of strange directions and I thought it was completely hilarious and it got a big response in the screening that I saw. Everybody was kind of howling with laughter. The, The plot is quite flimsy in a way and as and and as I kind of read a review which pointed out it at times it kind of veers close to uh, that very old trope of the kind of childless lonely woman because the daughter is is this you know she doesn't really have many friends she's a bit sad 
But somehow it kind of manages, despite its very flimsy premise, it manages to really work and to be at times quite poignant in, in depicting this kind of struggle between father and daughter. And the father is in some ways quite a dislikable guy. He's a kind of clown. You know, he loves to make people laugh, but in doing so, he's quite needy and inappropriate at times. And, you know, you can see why the daughter is annoyed with him. Yeah, genuinely kind of off-the-wall humour. It has an amazing final third, which is set at a birthday party, which was hilarious. Um, you've seen it as well, haven't you, Anders? I have, yes. Yeah. And I'm, that uh, birthday party scene is just like a masterclass in like comic, comedic escalation. Yes. It's so, yeah, it's so good. It's a true, I think it's a true dramedy. In, and a, mm. it's a, that's a difficult thing for films to pull off, you know. It's poignant and sad, but also laugh out loud hilarious yes yeah that's yeah. right and the vis- the visual comedy of that that birthday party sequence was fantastic yeah, totally. so funny <laughs> um and the other great comedy about masculinity that i saw after tony erdman was chevalier which is a greek film by athena rachel sangari um and that is set on a boat and is about a kind of a great ensemble performance by about half a dozen uh, male actors who compete with each other to decide which one of them is the best. And you've seen this one as well, Elise. Yeah, I saw it. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Very subtle comedy, just like really kind of sly, great commentary on, you know, just these men being really kind of it's kind of a commentary like what men go through to compete with each other but also kind of presents them as just being really petty but it's yeah not, it's not cruel I no someone, it's not someone mm. said that they thought it was maybe going to be a cruel kind of critique of these men but it was very funny and kind of engaging yeah on board with them yeah mm. it was it was that's right but but at the same time being a really great examination of, of kind of insecurity and competition yeah. there's a whole kind of extended sequence where they're comparing erections which sounds ridiculous and like it could be really you know frat comedy Mm. but is not at all it was actually genuinely funny speaking of erections and themes in movies at MIF I've seen a lot of penises have you? (laughs) yeah actually yeah but that theme didn't make childbirth penises we've got a kind of theme going on yeah I know yeah lots of focus on the body yeah yeah (laughs) neon ball has a lot of penises another another reason to see it anyway don't feel I'm missing out you saw Chevalier as well, didn't you? I did, yeah, and I would agree with everything you said. I mean, it's great. It's it's quite amazing how warm-hearted this film is mm. while still not pulling its punches. Yeah, yeah. which um, is yeah. pretty cool. Great. And I love how it sort of suggests at the end that um, this is now a competition. Turkey? Yes, we spoiler alert. Oh. Um, oh. Can we talk about spoilers? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, uh, the I, I love how it seems to suggest, anyway, that this competition is going to start spreading. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it doesn't confine it to the main group of characters. No, no. Yeah. Mm, yeah. 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 Very yeah. sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And um, then your number one. My number one. Okay, well, it barely needs any introduction, but um, my number one discovery, and I'm using quotes because it's not really discovery, is Isabelle Huppert in Elle. Mm. So, of course, she's a terrific actor. She's very much admired by a lot of people who I know and a lot of filmmakers, um, and she's been in a lot. 
but I saw was lucky at one of the lucky 500 or whatever to see the one and only screening of Elle at this festival. Among the first um, people in the world, yeah. Eloise, to see yes. this movie. Along with Anders. Anders and I were both there. I, I just want to say I almost went home and I because I was very tired and I'm so glad that I didn't. It was a 9.15 screening, two and a half hour movie almost, um, but just very energetic and just really uh, like a... Um, so engaging. A uh, Paul Verhoeven film, um, he's kind of like the king of trash, but, you know, lovable and loud, uh, colourful, fast-paced, everything. But Isabelle Huppert's performance is just terrific. Um, so this is kind of, I suppose, the, the genre that this movie is, is rape revenge, but it's almost a um, not quite fair that, that, that that's like the label it's got because it is um, sort of does all of these um, really interesting things with a woman, Isabel Huppert, who is raped um, and she goes about trying to, I don't know, just it just deals with the aftermath and her feelings and then, but it also questions that. It's not really a typical look at a woman who, and, you know, how she deals with sort of being oppressed or whatever. It's just really great and empowering. I felt like it was very empowering mm. um, and a lot of fun as well. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but I, I felt like it was a lot of fun and, yeah, mm. really engaging. Mm. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with your comments about Hugh Pear. I think she's, she's in many ways, she's instrumental to, um, I think I've, I've tweeted of, uh, something along the lines of, um, she sort of not only rescues Elle, but actually shoves it in the direction of greatness. Like, she's really, really good. And I think she's key to making it a good film. Um, yeah. And I really want to... I think you're right. I yeah. think um, the... Yeah, and one moment I would like to spotlight from the film is... Uh, so, the film sort of goes back to this sexual assault, which which it opens with several times for, uh, throughout its running time. And one of these flashbacks, we see a play out, but we see her sort of take her revenge, fight back halfway through the scene. And uh, it's quite sort of shocking and confronting to watch, uh, but then suddenly it cuts to this shot of Isabelle Huppert staring into the middle distance and then this sort of half-smile sort of forms on her face. And I think that is sort of what this film's doing. It's sort of shocking you, but then also that half-smile, it sort of turns that into a sort of a moment of slight comedy, slight perplexing, you know, is she, is she, what's she doing here? Is she fantasising? Is she... Mm relishing and I, I, it's, it's such a minefield of yeah, a movie it's, it's a film really about her responses to, yeah you know what she yep, comes yep. across and um, about her responses you know in the larger scheme of things and also her facial expressions as of responses and and how we're meant to kind of how we are positioned to see the film or to see her experiences based on how she deals mm. with them mm. What, what was the audience reaction like? I mean, speaking for myself, I, I find sexual violence on screen is one of those things I dread and that mm. I kind of try to mm. avoid watching. I am the same. Yeah, mm. yeah. But I mean, was was the audience kind of on board with with it? I think so. I mean, it it's funny. It's also yeah. funny. Obviously, yeah. the rape scene is not funny. It's, well, yeah, and that's the key goes, point. Yeah, I think that's the key yeah, point. Yeah. He doesn't play it for laughs. No, it's right. taken very seriously. Yeah. But the rest of the film is funny, and and Isabel Huppert, you know makes jokes here and there. Yeah. Um, but the audience, so the audience was laughing, mm. I think at least around me. I do know, you know, I kind of saw on Twitter that some some people just had that knee jerk, oh, my God, mm. it's a sexual assault, I can't deal with this. Yeah. And then and then kind of were disgusted by it. Right. On that premise. Right. Um, but I do think it's 
more clever than than that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, does it remind you of any other films? Have you seen anything like this before? <laughs> the only film it reminds me of is Showgirls, <laughs> basically Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls, which I think is just a such a great film and has another, you know, really uh, adoring and also um, invigorating lead performance from a, a woman. I think Verhoeven does really interesting things with subjects that are generally treated maybe more exploitatively or mm. with maybe a, a you know more um, fear, I suppose. Anyway, so you know, Showgirls is the stripper, and mm. this is a sexual assault film, uh, sort of maybe rape revenge, but just does really interesting things. Anyway, mm. so Showgirls and Elle would make <laughs> a great double feature. That's my Ooh. next programming goal. <laughs> come to that. Yeah. Oh well, on the on the topic of um, great uh, performances by women, my third pick would be Certain Women, directed mm. by Kelly Reichardt, um, who I think is a wonderful filmmaker. And for me, this is her best film since Wendy and Lucy, which I think was two thousand and eight. Uh, her film with Michelle Williams. Um, mm. Many of her films have Michelle Williams in them, mm. and Michelle Williams mm. is indeed in Certain Women, as is Kristen Stewart who I am also looking forward very much to seeing next week in Personal Shopper. Yeah, um, yeah I, 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 I feel like Certain Women is, 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 a, is a kind of genre of film that a lot of people try to do and very few get right, which is a kind of very understated character study. It's based on short stories, which you've read. Yeah, you, by Maylee Malloy, mm. uh, an American author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of three sequential stories of three women um and the final and it's set in montana um and i mean that that in itself is kind of uh, kelly rackard is quite well known for for using oregon as, as a kind of repeat setting for her film so this is a bit of a change for her nevertheless her use of landscape is really fantastic and particularly in the final third which uh features Kristen Stewart as a kind of adult education kind of teacher, night teacher, and a student um, played by Lily Gladstone. And these two characters may be falling for each other, but maybe not. It's really poignant. It's really beautifully done. There are a lot of shots in this film where you don't see characters directly, but you see them in reflections, in car mirrors, in windows. There's this beautiful mm. shot um, in the second segment with Michelle Williams. And yeah. so mm. her husband is driving the car and she's looking out the window um, and the car window is wound up. So you see her through yes. that reflection, but you can see the reflection of the landscape in the window sort you of can. like in front of her face. And there's this like magnificent shot that has stuck in my memory where they drive obviously past a mountain and sl very slowly the mountain reflection kind of overtakes Michelle Williams' face yes. and kind of blocks her out. And yeah. then, it, and then yeah, right. as the car moves past, it goes off and her face kind of emerges again. And it's like obviously just this, you know, appreciation of the landscape mm. and, and of, of our kind of existence within it. So, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it, I think it's a really um, it's a really well done film. Very very quiet and maybe a film. Certainly, when I walked out of it, I could hear people saying that it was a film in which nothing happened. I mean, I think if you kind of don't pay attention to it, it may be a film that see that seems insubstantial and that kind of just passes mm. you by. But I think actually, there's 
yeah, there's a there's a lot in it, and I, yeah, I just think Kelly Reichardt is is such a talent. Um, mm. Yeah, that was great. I think so too, and I really oh. appreciate that. I've heard a, a friend of mine said actually that she would like to see Kelly Reichardt go deeper into um, personality, right? Go deeper into emotions, and I just think that that there are filmmakers who do that, which yeah. is fine. Um, but that's not what Kelly Reichardt does, and I think that's you know so. Like, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I th- I, for me, her films are very emotional because they're about what isn't shown yeah, and what, yeah, isn't what isn't said. said. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, maybe it would be interesting for her to do that, but I, th- I think I think what she does, you know, it's, it's you know, she's an iceberg filmmaker. Nine-tenths of it mm. is mm. happening yeah, below yeah. the surface. <laughs> yeah. Great recommendation. Yeah. yeah. Sounds really cool. Good one. And, Anders, what was your... um? Greatest discovery. Uh, yeah, so my greatest discovery this year has been watching movies at 11.30pm. Uh, so I've booked into a couple um, and it's the first time really that I've done late night film viewing in a long time. Um, it's I started um, if my first film this year was um, the indie horror The Eyes of My Mother, 11.30pm uh, last Friday. And it was a really great introduction to... Uh, <laughs> guess like a, a liminal introduction into film festival land. Uh, I'd come from like a very hectic week or month, year, whatever. Uh, and um, just like, yeah, uh, I was in a, in an interesting state, I guess, when I watched that film, but it really, really had a strong impact on me. It's sort of a nightmarish horror film that, um, yeah, sort of rolled into the Saturday and my viewing for that weekend, I guess. Um, yeah, so there's, and then last night I saw this amazing documentary, uh, Helmut Berger Actor, uh, all about the German actor who was sort of a big figure in European cinema in the 70s and 80s. Uh, his star has long since sort of dwindled and now he's living this semi-hermit existence um, and he's a man with a lot of hoarding issues um, <laughs> in this small apartment. Anyway, uh, this film is all about this his crazy... Um, relationship with Andreas Horvath, the documentarian uh, who's making this film. Uh, he's sort of um, Helmut Berger. He, like, yells at him, screams at him. He sort of leaves these rambling, crazy voicemails about how, you know, he's ruining his life and this documentary uh, is, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened to him. And then he also tries in a weird, very abrasive way to seduce him um, as well. So, he says, you know, he's quite sexually explicit stuff and it ends with a sort of attempt Tempted seduction, which is just like crazy, the, yeah, the craziest thing I've seen in a long time. And it was the perfect thing to be watching at 1am on <laughs> a Saturday, early Saturday morning. Mm. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it's it's fun watching movies late at night. It's like you, you develop a bit of a camaraderie with the audience, you know, you're in a mm. half-empty cinema uh, and then you have that wonderful experience at Acme of walking out into a deserted fed, Federation Square. Mm. I thus far have not managed to stay up late enough, um, <laughs> well at least stay out late enough to make an 11.30 screening, but it is on my list of things to do before I die. <laughs> Hopefully this this festival, maybe. Mm. Anyway. Well, you can see Room at Nova, which I still believe is showing. Oh. I feel like I've, I've, I've not seen that for long enough that I don't ever have to see it. Okay. Anyway, my opinion about Room. Yeah. yeah. Similarly. I'd be interested. Have you guys got any late night film experiences mm. that have yeah. stayed with you? In life. Yeah. In, in yeah. life. Sorry, not just in life, in general. In general. <laughs> oh, probably. Um, I'm sure I've seen late night movies in New York. Um, mm. But mm. I feel like, you know, when I was a teenager, 
um, I, there was a, a cinema in Sydney that no longer exists, the kind of village twin cinema on George Street in the CBD that used to do kind of cult midnight screenings. And I remember being mm. about... Um, 15 years old and going with and you know I lived in the outer suburbs like two hours out of the city so it was quite an adventure um, going yeah. in for a midnight screening of A Clockwork Orange which was still I mean in the 1990s a film that didn't have mm. distribution really in Australia and was really unavailable mm. outside mm. of these midnight screenings yeah, right. and you know we were underage so we were extra proud of ourselves <laughs> for getting into the R-rated film <laughs> <laughs> I think I feel like if you're gonna, you know, you, that was a pretty kind of perfect first encounter with a Clockwork Orange. Yeah, if you're gonna yeah, do it, totally. if you're gonna do, do it, it right. do it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that was quite memorable. Well, I went to quite a few screenings a few years ago of Japanese horror and body horror movies that I can't remember the name of and couldn't really pronounce at the time, but I remember scenes from them. And it mm. seems to be more like the liminal experience you were talking about, where mm. things stay with you, but you, they're kind of dis- dissociated from each other. Yeah. But I was also a very regular attender of the cult vault at Westgarth Cinema, which would have monthly midnight screenings. Right. Because when you would live like a couple hundred metres from a cinema and you walk out at two in the morning, there's something like magical about it. It is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So there were some fantastic movies like Zombie 2 and George <laughs> Romero movies that were programming for a while. <laughs> it was a perfect time to see them. Cool. Um, and that's uh, so we've got one last section, which mm, yeah. is retrospectives and uh, I suppose not really discoveries, but they're more affirmations of yeah. things that we know are great. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing, uh, the film I wanted to mention is a screening of Akira Kurosawa's No Regrets for Our Youth, which is screening in Myth's special Tetsuko Hara um, tribute section, I guess. Um, So this is a 1946 film um, and I was sort of not too keen going into it. I just kind of expected it was going to be like any old, you know, Japanese post-war wartime melodrama um, and maybe with, you know, some political commentary. So I wasn't super keen on it, but it really struck me as as a stunning film. So for maybe the first half or the first, um, you know, third, it wasn't really doing anything special. It was was the Tsukohara and she sort of has, has two possible love interests, one whom is um, respected by her parents and one who is kind of a, a loose cannon and ends up, you know, um, being sent to prison for an anti-fascist, you know, um, treason, I mm, suppose. Yeah. Um, but just the the way this film appreciates Hitsuko Hara as a character and as uh, someone who, who is, a, you know, a beacon of emotion is mm. is incredible mm. and there's this one particular sequence where quite early on in the film where she is um kind of torn between her two potential lovers and she goes and locks herself in a room and shuts the door and her mom is outside kind of beating beating down the door trying to get her to come out and and behave herself but she's just you can see she's kind of torn and there's uh, four shots so four cuts um of her in a different different sequence, um, different kind of pose of sadness and pain. Um, and I was just very, very moved by it. And there's mm. a number of other shots that have stuck in my memory from mm. the film, just really well done. You know, I mean, it's no surprise that Kurosawa is a, an incredible director. Um, and this is maybe one of his lesser known films. I'm not quite sure, but I know he's famous, you know, for his action and and more so. Um, but this was a, yeah, a really wonderful film. Yeah, I saw it as well. And, 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 uh, 
Sakurahara's performance was was amazing, really, you know, luminous, mm. I think. Um, she really carries the film. Um, and I found it a really interesting, I guess, document of... It's not a documentary, but nevertheless a document of anti-fascist sentiment in Japan at that time. Um, yeah, it was really... I'm, I'm glad I saw. I'm glad I saw that one. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And it kind of ends, you know, with a typical like um, social comment on everyone, you know, sticking together and helping each other out, and <laughs> going, you know, going back to the farm and being, you know, mm. growing rice. Mm. Um, but it's, it's. I found it very affecting, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't trite or it wasn't um, dull. At mm. All, mm. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. And is there, um, is there anything that you've well, no, so I, I can't really speak of any authority on these retros because I haven't really seen much apart from the Jerry Lewis, which we've already talked about right. um, mm. uh, on this podcast before. Uh, but I am um, booked into a couple of the uh, Spanish, uh, what is it, new wave, weird, uh, surrealist, surrealist uh, stuff. So, um, uh, and I, I've made a very conscious decision not to do any research on that. So, yeah. we'll just go in blind, see <laughs> see how that goes. Yeah. Um, and I'll just on the topic of affirmations, very briefly, can I affirm Miff's choice of Hoyts? I just love seeing a movie <laughs> at mm. the multiplex. <laughs> They're very comfortable seats. Yes. Comfy seats and good good screen and good, good sound. sound yeah. And I love yeah. mixing it up with like the uh, comic book people on like Saturday night screenings there. It's <laughs> yeah. so much fun. It's like the real energy uh, that you get from like, you know, lots of people doing different cool stuff, which mm-hmm. you don't often get, I think, anymore. So yeah. it's cool. So you've got like, like confused myth people coming out of cinemas next to Suicide Squad. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Disappointed it's by yeah. <laughs> nice yeah. to mix these things up. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, for sure. The yeah, gamut Melbourne. of cinema. <laughs> I have, yes, yes. I've seen a couple of them and I've also seen several films in the Gaining Ground retrospective strand, which is the retrospective strand of New York women filmmakers from the late 70s and early 80s. Um, there's some real gems in, in that series and they all fit together really beautifully. So Girlfriends, Smithereens... Losing Ground, uh, Sleepwalk, which Sleepwalk. you, you saw, saw that. that. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing that next week. Really great films. And, and again, really interesting, although none of them are documentaries, really interesting documents of New York at a particular period of time, kind of pre... I lived in New York myself for several years, so I'm kind of always fondly attached to articles and, mm. you know, documents of New York. Um, mm. But this is New York at a, at a kind of time when really the city was kind of falling apart. Um, and I find films from this era are quite poignant because they're they're kind of about everything falling apart but they have a lot of hope in them and a lot of energy and yeah so so that's been a really great mm, strand yeah. but I want to give a particular shout out to one of the Barcelona films that I have seen which was a documentary called Far From The Trees um, which was shot in 1963 but not released until 1972 because it contradicted with Franco's kind of image of it it it, it was censored you know it was it was held up by his regime essentially for many years for kind of contradicting his image of a modernist Spain mm. because it is shot in 
rural villages and is really a kind of compendium of folk ritual in rural Spain. Um, and a very, it was a lot more intense than I was anticipating, a kind of very intense mixture of Catholic ritual and animal cruelty. And the latter in particular, I think, a lot of people, including me, found quite confronting. Lots of people walked out. It's the f film that's had the most walkouts of myth so wow. far that I've been at. Um, it was extraordinary, though, um, and the kind of thing that you would only see at something like MIF, mm. and really beautifully filmed, filmed with a very, despite the kind of intensity of the subject matter. Well, in fact, the intensity of the subject matter was, I think, further intensified by this very kind of cool, objective camera work. Um, the film really didn't ever tell you what to think about any of these rituals. Mm. Mm. Um, and the, the one thing, particularly the sequences with animals, the one thing that I was reminded of was a... A documentary by the French filmmaker Georges Franjou, which was made in the 1940s called La Sang de Bête, The Blood mm. of the Beasts, which is a documentary about a slaughterhouse, um, which wow. is relentless. It's only like 20 minutes long. It's, it is. It's, it's only about 20 minutes long, yeah. but if you've ever seen it, you will never forget it. Mm. And similarly with this one, I can still see it quite vividly in my head. I'm not sure I could in all good conscience recommend it because it is quite hard to watch. Mm. But nevertheless, if you ever come across this film, Far From the Trees, I think it's worthwhile mm. checking yeah. It out wow. yeah. yeah and speaking of checking things out we'll be back in a week or possibly two depending on how much time depending on our schedule mm. yes and <laughs> what, whether Myth releases this when it's gripped enough for long enough to be able to regroup mm. we'd love to talk some more about films we've seen and so. we'd love to hear That's from right. you let us know the cult cat pod at yeah. culture yeah. capital on Facebook yeah have we said anything very uh, you know that you agree with or that you want to fight us with. Yeah. You know, we're all for fisticuffs here. Mm. So, so <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening and hopefully hear from you soon. Mm.